Welcome to the Transformative Ideas podcast. We have a new name, but still try to bring you the same insightful conversations with leading researchers from all over the world. Ideas really have the power to transform us and our guests frequently had their lives transformed by these ideas and their passion for them. In these conversations, we try to capture some of that passion and make it accessible to our listeners. I'm your host, Manuel Brenner. And now, without any further ado, let's jump right in. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm speaking with Christoph Benner. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thanks for the invitation. As usual, I'm going to start with a short introduction on your background. You just finished your PhD at the Laboratory of Energy Metabolism at ETH in Zurich. And in this context, you studied lifespan, primarily focusing on model organisms such as C. elegans, but also with applications to yeah, mitochondrial aging and overall related to overall questions of how aging takes place in the body. So maybe as an opener question, what brought you to study this topic more specifically, to study aging, maybe even to, to biochemistry? Yeah, um, to answer that, I have to maybe step, uh, step back a little bit. Um, I have a background in clinical neuroscience. So I did a master um, there focusing on depression. Um, after that, I wanted to do actually a PhD in neuroscience as well. I applied to the graduate school in Zurich, um, where I checked out some laboratories and some offers. Um, as so often, um, the plans that you have in your mind don't play out. Um, but I got a, I saw a really interesting uh, other project that was involved in aging research. And that actually picked up one of my interests that I gained during my bachelor studies in Maastricht, um, where I was really um, fascinated by basically compound-induced extension of lifespan. Um, and so I joined the lab. I focused on the genetic uh, disentanglement of aging, how aging, um, well, how aging occurs in the body and how diseases of aging occur. Um, I wrote a review and I focused specifically on how transcription factors, these are proteins in the cell um, that really directly regulate gene expression, how they influence the aging process. And I did that um, over the last four and a half years, starting in 2018. And as I just said, uh, yeah, I recently graduated. I think maybe the, the fundamental question that everyone thinks they know something about, but that is actually biologically a very complicated process and a very difficult process to understand and treat is so what is aging? Yeah, and that's a simple question, not so simple answer. Um, well, this, I mean, you can broadly define aging as the time-dependent accumulation of um, damage in the body that cannot really be repaired anymore. This is one one theory uh, what aging is, which leads to basically cellular dysfunction and to the whole organism dysfunction, resulting in uh, diseases and ultimately death. Um, so this is one theory. Another theory actually uh, states that aging is uh, basically a consequence of uh, software that is baseline running in the body. So basically, um, there's a concept called um, pleiotropy. Um, that basically states that um, cellular processes that are important during, during development, that are basically important for you to grow and to reach reproductive uh, maturity, are detrimental uh, in adulthood. So basically, that means that uh, processes that drive growth, uh, um, that is good in the beginning of your life, become harmful in the end of your life. So that's broadly two broadly uh, two broad definitions of what aging is. So I guess we will get into the details uh, later. But 
this also relates, I guess, to the observation that you age the most during puberty, or that this is a period of very accelerated aging. Yeah, exactly. So that's the, that's the period where you basically still are in the development phase. So your body puts great effort and great energy in, in, in the growth phase still until you actually reach the reproductive maturity. Yeah, and in reverse, like following the reverse logic, some of the interventions or things you can do against aging are actually like kind of limiting your growth and not taking growth factors. Exactly. Tracking back to the to the foundations before we get into the weeds of, of all the details. So I know you studied model organisms, the C. elegant worm, and this might seem also a bit counterintuitive where we study worms when we are human beings and we are assume we are much more complex. So why is it so relevant for neuroscience and or other branches of biology to study model organisms? Well, um, as, an, as generally science approaches, um, if, you want to stand, uh, if you want to understand a certain process, you generally try to cut down the problem into smaller pieces. And with regards to biology, you often do that by choosing a very simple organism, um, which basically um, has an evolutionary conservation with regards to genetic patterns or cellular pathways. And you study those pathways in this thing, in the simple model organism to draw a conclusion how that might impact um, aging on a more complex organisms like humans. So, for example, what I um, have been mostly working with was the small roundworm C. elegans, which is a well, rather small one millimeter long um, roundworm. It's transparent and it is um, very useful for aging research because well, it has a quite short lifespan with approximately 30 days um, with which you can quite straightforwardly measure pharmacological interventions or genetic manipulation and see the consequences of aging <clears throat> and certain age-related param parameters. You can also use other model organisms such as uh, Baker's yeast. Um, uh, there's also evolutionary concerns with regards to many genes and pathways uh, involved in aging. And if you want to go into mammals, obviously the most favorite uh, organism would be mice or rats. Yeah, and the C. elegant worm is also very relevant in neuroscience because it has very nice properties that it actually has a very conserved number of neurons. I think it's 305 or something. I don't know exactly, yeah, but I think... Uh... Rather, rather, it's uh, it's you have a you have a good overview over the nervous system compared to humans for sure. Yeah, and it's it's almost deterministic, so that you can actually understand how genes map to biology, which you can't in in the human brain, for example, or not as straightforwardly. So another important aspect, I guess, about aging is this kind of paradigm shift that some researchers in the field are trying to usher in that we see aging as a disease directly and. We are currently mostly treating symptoms of aging that are caused by aging, but we don't see like the forest for the trees when it comes to what is actually causing these underlying causes. So maybe you want to say something about that. Yeah, so maybe first with regard to the classification of aging as a disease, it has been a rather hot topic recently because the World Health Organization has been um, ping-ponging back and forth the definition if they should include... Um, aging or old age as a disease in the international classification of disease. I think um, the, the volume would be 11, ICD-11. The good thing, about, well, there's pros and cons. A pros, um, people who are pro-including old age as a disease state that that would facilitate greatly the regulatory 
um, um, strategies towards actually developing compounds against aging and having those uh, having these um, well publicly marketed. Um, people who are against that state that um, well defining old age per se as a disease might lead to something called ageism. So basically that um, yeah people with old age are directly classified as sick or having no uh, perfect health. And this is obviously not true because you can have a biologically old person, um, uh, sorry, a chronologically old person that is biologically young. And um, maybe we talk about it later in more detail, but you have today um, already some methods to, to measure how old you are on a biological level, for example, uh, methylation patterns of your DNA. So you can have a chronologically old person that is biologically young and the other way around you can have a chronologically young person that is um, biologically old. So it's still an ongoing debate uh, whether or not um, this should be included and with regards to the to the causes of aging I think we are still um, in its in the infancy of really really figuring out what causes the process of aging. I mean um, there's obviously a problem with the fact that our societies are getting older and older. The percentage of people aged 60 plus is estimated to roughly double from 12 to 22 percent between 2015 and 2050. And that goes obviously um, hand in hand with age-related diseases such as type 2 diabetes, neurodegeneration, uh, cancer. And to, to, to basically get a scientific grip on that, there are by now... 12 hallmarks of aging um, but they have different different um, different weights in how how they how they impact aging um, but this for now i guess uh, we'll we'll get into the to the single hallmarks of aging maybe at a at a later time point yeah i guess we won't have time to cover all of the 12 hallmarks of aging no, no. <laughs> but the the ways to measure or to distinguish biological age from chronological age so the biological markers are also in important ways related to the hallmarks of aging directly. So they are connected. How you can measure it is connected to how we think of what happens in the body when you age. What do you think are like the most, probably there's also correlations among them, but what do you think are the most like, yeah, useful markers of aging within the body? Well, for example, one of the hallmarks of aging, and uh, now we get into that uh, anyway, one of the hallmarks is uh, epigenetic alteration. So epigenetic um refers to any changes um, of your expression of DNA or the DNA that's not directly correlated with the code itself. So basically, uh, you can have methylation. So this is basically, well, as the name implies, you, you have methyl groups attached to your DNA. You can have histone modification, which are the proteins that your DNA is wrapped around. And one of the, um, one of the markers of biological aging is the um, methylation pattern, which was um, discovered mostly by a scientist called Steve Horwath, who developed um, the Horwath clocks, which are by now developed in certain uh, or different varieties. But basically, they found out a small number of places in your DNA called CPG islands. I think by now they are around 350 that either show a hyper or hypomethylation. Um, and these can be read out basically. Um, by giving you giving DNA samples, this is actually, I think, one of the most, um, one of the one of the biggest uh, or, or 
well, highest correlations between chronological and biological age. And these methylations in turn lead to dysfunction in the expression of genes. Exactly. So they can be, for example, methylation patterns in, in, in DNA regions called promoters um, change the expression of genes because promoters are the regions of genes where transcription factors, which I mentioned in the beginning, which were the focus of my PhD thesis, um, but um, transcription factors directly bind and regulate the expression of genes. So um, depending on the methylation state, you have access or no access of a transcription factor. And depending on the gene, obviously there's genes that are beneficial and um, detrimental to, to the process of aging. And depending on, on, the, on the kind of gene, well, that's obviously also going to have either a beneficial or detrimental effect on your um, biological age. So David Sinclair, who is probably the most vocal and famous proponent of the aging or like tackling aging as a disease, uh, proposed this theory of this like information loss on the epigenome. Can you maybe yeah, talk about that a little, how that relates to what you just said? Yeah, so um, David Sinclair is mostly, um, or, or I know him mostly for his, um, for his, for his research on sirtuins, which are NAD-dependent histone deacetylases. Um, so I said earlier that histones are the proteins that um, your DNA is wrapped around. And sirtuins are, um, well, energy-dependent uh, deacetylases. So basically, they react to the cellular energy status um, by the, with the ratio of NAD to NADH, which is a finely balanced redox system. And if your energy, um, sorry, if you, Let's say if your ATP, which is the, let's say it in uh, easy terms, your eight, your energy currency um, drops uh, drops in your cell that activates sirtuins and they ha then have a certain effect on a histone um, acetylation stage. And basically with the information theory, David Sinclair um, wants to point towards the fact that it's not um, the DNA sequence itself, but basically the overlying epigenetic mechanism that governs aging. So because in that uh, overarching structure, information gets lost and so you can basically induce aging by just random mutations or like random changes in this epigenetic landscape. And you don't really have to change the DNA in order for the function mm -hmm. to be disturbed. So yeah, now that you mentioned the energy households and, and ATP, maybe we can move <laughs> towards mitochondria, which is also something you've studied in more detail. And how that relates to aging. Yeah. yeah, so actually mitochondrial dysfunction is another hallmark of aging. And mitochondria, probably a lot of people know from high school as the, the very famous powerhouses of the cell. And by now we know that uh, mitochondria perform a lot more tasks than merely producing ATP. So, for example, they're involved in this, the synthesis of steroid hormones. Um, they also uh, impact your melatonin uh, production, which is uh, inducing sleep, for example. And with regards to aging, um, mitochondria are interesting because for a long time there has been a hypothesis um, that was put forward by a scientist called Harman, who stated um, the free radical theory of aging. So basically, mitochondria are one of the main sites of reactive oxygen species, species production which happens at the inner mitochondrial membrane. So mitochondria has two membranes. And at the inner mitochondrial membrane, there's a complex, there are five protein complexes 
that ultimately make up the electron transport chain. And they are used to break down substrates that you take in with your, with your diet. And um, by, by, by metabolizing those, they generate a proton gradient. And at the last protein enzyme, this proton gradient is used to produce ATP. And um, especially at complex one, <laughs> Um, uh, is the main site of reactive oxygen species uh, production and has this potentially, so reactive oxygen species potentially can harm your DNA or your proteins um, if they exceed a certain limit. And uh, the, the free radical theory of aging states that reactive oxygen species are basically bad for you because they just cause damage. However, what we now, what we now know is that there's also a... Um, a process called mitohormesis. So ROS, so reactive oxygen species, are not only bad, but they can actually be beneficial um, if they are contained um, um, in, a, in a short time frame and if they don't exceed a certain threshold. So for example, um, one of the best examples, um, which are also regimen that um, extend lifespan and model organisms, uh, and uh, mammals is, for example, if you exercise either by endurance training or strength training, or if you reduce calories, um, that basically induces reactive oxygen species in a short bolus, which puts the body in a in a stressful situation. And actually, this short stressful situation um, is used by the body to mount a vaccine-like uh, protective response. So in a long term, this short term short term stressor, because your body is well, uh, needs to do something about this this uh, uh, this threat, so to say, and on a long term, it produces, for example, more antioxidant uh, enzymes such as catalases, um, or improves your immune function, uh, basically uh, improves your survivability after um, well such a short short stressor occurs. So the like the free radical hype was uh, when they were discovered in the eighties or something when everyone started taking vitamin C to fight against them. exactly yeah and and also um, what has been found out was for example that if you block the 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 short reactive oxygen uh, bolus for example after exercise if you block that immediately after exercise with antioxidants then you also block the beneficial effects of exercise. So the basically shows you that, first of all, um, those short-term reactive oxygen species are really needed to, well, get the benefit from, for example, exercise, but also that um, vitamin C supplementation, um, yeah, uh, does nothing or yeah, at best does nothing and at worst even causes damage. This is, for example, also with vitamin E can have, um, yeah, potentially more damaging effect than you can imagine. So yeah, like you said, the hype of antioxidants uh, should be over, even though it is still put forward uh, a lot in the in advertisement. Yeah, yeah. The public usually takes some more years to to adjust to new findings when when you have these yeah, sure. ideas yeah. floating around. It also reminds me like if you work out, that causes an inflammatory response in your muscles, for example, and inflammation to a certain yeah. extent is healthy as long as it doesn't go past yeah. the threshold it becomes chronic exactly yeah so this is actually also another hallmark of aging um increased or excessive inflammation there's also a neologism um called inflammaging hmm. so combining inflammation and aging 
which basically states that as you get older, your immune system uh, gets over overactive and that can create also an increase, uh, a permanent uh, yeah, low-grade increase in inflammatory markers such as interleukins um, that basically cause harm and have secondary effects uh, on your on your on your on your biological aging. Yeah, if I understood that correctly, I think like also COVID mortality was related to this inflammatones because it leads to a strong inflammatory response in the body that then it ends up with this interleukin or leukin storm. I don't know mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. what it's called. So, yeah. yeah. Again, one of the, during COVID, we saw pretty impressively that risk really correlates very strongly with age. So there needs to be some underlying things that happen during aging that increases risk. Now that we've talked, uh, already started talking about mitochondria. So what is mitochondrial aging or like now that we that you mentioned that the free radical theory doesn't really hold too much ground, what actually leads to aging in the mitochondria? Um, so basically, uh, as we had in the very beginning, um, the idea that uh, aging can be defined as time-dependent decrease of organ or organal function, that basically is also in the case with mitochondria. So as you get older, mitochondria starts to uh, basically disintegrate. So it can be that the membrane potential that I stated that is um, established by the electron transport chain gets lower so that uh, the ATP production gets also messy. So uh, the energy that is usually used to produce ATP uh, is now basically lost and uh, the functional integrity of the electron transport chain uh, gets lost. And so more reactive oxygen species are produced, uh, which then actually might cause uh, an excessive rust bolus that also can cause... Um, yeah, like I said, DNA damage or, or cell membrane damage. So there's also, um, so counteract this, you can, uh, well, you can take certain pharmacological uh, agents that improve mitochondrial function. And also recently, there has been a quite an interesting paper um, that used uh, a light sensor and mitochondria to, to re-establish the membrane potential in C. elegans, which basically uh, rescued or it could extend lifespan or, or basically um, yeah, re-establish mitochondrial function and thereby uh, prevent the aging phenotype. Yeah, one thing I mentioned previously to our conversation, I don't know if you looked into this or know about this, but Chris Palmer, uh, the, the MD, proposes this idea that yeah, mitochondrial dysfunction underlies not only like a lot of metabolic illnesses, but also a lot of mental illnesses. Now you mm -hmm. you have an interest in psychiatry as well and in, in neuroscience. So there seems to be some very interesting relationships between what happens in the mitochondria and what happens in the overall body. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, when I did my master thesis, um, I was investigating mitochondrial function um, derived from fibroblasts, so skin cells from healthy uh, or depressed patients and healthy controls. And what we could find was interestingly that mitochondria derived or in those fibroblasts um, had a dysfunction. So they produced less ATP. They had uh, um, also they produced more uh, inflammatory markers. And we also generated neurons from these fibroblasts. So we used a technology called induced pluripotent stem cells. So we induced stem cells first from those fibroblasts which you can do by the overexpression of the famous Yamanaka transcription factors. 
And from these stem cells, which have the potential to basically develop into all cell types of your body, we generated neurons. And we, we did some electrophysiology uh, on those and also could, saw, uh, could see that uh, they had some mitochondrial uh, dependent dysfunction in that. So the question, of course, is uh, what is hen and what is egg? So um, does uh, mitochondrial dis uh, dysfunction lead to uh, mental disorders or do mental disorders uh, um, lead to a more uh, or to a decreased mitochondrial function? But uh, most likely it's a, it's a well... Um, uh, an interplay between the two but it's it's definitely interesting to see that um now if you consider that only let's say 30 40 years back or um uh, yeah let's say 1970s uh yeah there was not a real connection between the the mental realm and the in the biological realm so it's really fascinating to see now that we actually find out that um uh yeah psychiatry is not only um, mental dysfunction, but that also they also manifest themselves into into bodily into bodily manifestation. I think there was also um, a famous psychiatrist. I forgot his name. It's a it was a Dutch. I think the cock who said um, that the body keeps the score. So especially in in um, people who who experience traumatic experiences, um, those traumatic experiences. That obviously all manifests themselves in in the psyche, also manifests themselves in in uh, the body functions. Yeah, yeah, his his book is very interesting about like how trauma basically deeply embodied, and you can only treat it by like yeah, tackling the embodied yeah. issues. Yeah, one of the interesting comorbidities of mental health issues like schizophrenia or depression is also that it accelerates aging. So. I think that's also a nice indicator of what we are just talking about, that there are definitely some connections. The thing is, uh, what you also have uh, with mental disorders like uh, Alzheimer's disease, they actually show another hallmark of aging, which is um, the loss of proteostasis, um, which is a, uh, well, a compound word for of protein homeostasis. So basically in the cell, you have a finely tuned balance uh, of your of your protein production and protein degradation, and this uh, well, if the protein degradation system, which uh, happens via a process called, or, or amongst others, autophagy, um, which is a newly added uh, hallmark of aging, um, so if 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 the proteins don't get degraded anymore properly, they aggregate and can cause uh, issues such well as. Uh, would be the case for Alzheimer's disease with the uh, with the amyloid plaques, um, even though that that view has been challenged a bit in the in the in the past, but um, it it has been stated that it, that it causes or has been it's associated with Alzheimer's disease, and um, the proteins that, uh, that aggregate can be uh, can be cleared better if you increase this autophagic process. So. Um, autophagy in general is an evolutionary conserved process by which misfolded proteins or other um, debris to be degraded is uh, destined to other organelles called the lysosomes, um, which are basically the trash bin of your cell. So everything that needs to be cleared off uh, is destined to the lysosomes uh, where they are degraded. And uh, yeah, if you have, uh, for example, also what I what I mentioned earlier, the evolutionary um, the evolutionary conserved best well-studied 
um, means to extend lifespan, caloric restriction, or exercise, they also increase uh, autophagy um, and lead to degradation of uh, lipid species. They also, it has been shown that it basically um, re reorganizes uh, lipid metabolism to more healthy uh, lipid metabolic byproducts. And so uh, also exercise and dietary restriction can actually prevent uh, those protein aggregates to occur and thereby also to prevent uh, getting neurodegenerative disorders. And as far as I understood, these senescent cells are also connected to that, like clearing them out is one of the important things. Yeah, yeah. So senescent cells are also an interesting topic um, because they also correlate with probably one of the, the most well-known or one of the, let's say, the earliest um, known markers of aging, which is telomere attrition. So telomeres are basically the short caps um, on, your, on the end of your chromosomes that shorten gradually the older you get and the, the more cell cycles your cells experience. And um, there, is a, there is a phenomenon called replicative senescence, which has been discovered by a scientist called Hayflick. And this has been discovered in cultured fibroblasts, so cultured skin cells. And he saw, or he and his team saw, uh, that the longer you passage fibroblasts in culture, they start some, at some point, to, they stop to divide, but they don't go into cell death. So nowadays, uh, and which is now known as senescent cells. And these senescent cells are also called uh, zombie cells because they are kind of alive, but they don't replicate. So uh, they basically cause, cause harm um, by, by excreting uh, or by, by, by portraying what is known the senescence-associated secretory phenotype or SASP for short. And they basically eject a lot of inflammatory markers and thereby cause um, a deregulated intercellular uh, communication, which is another hallmark of aging. So that means uh, I've read once, but I don't really know how, how, how research uh, backed up this is, but I read that basically gray hair is, um, uh, is caused by senescent cells. So as soon as you have a gray hair, um, this, the, the hair follicle goes into senescence and they basically... Um, produce uh, inflammatory markers and other detrimental uh, metabolites that cause your surrounding hair to also get gray. Um, there's also, I mean, senescence is a special case because there's not really um, a direct marker to to prove that. I mean, there's something called beta-galactosidase in the cell culture, how to, how to show that cells go into senescence. Um, but mostly if you, if, like, if you have senescent cells, they will have um, a lot of secondary damage. And to counteract this development, um, there are compounds called xenolytics. So compounds that are aimed to remove your senescent cells from the body. Um, for example, quercetin or physetin are examples that also um, occur in uh, certain dietary supplements or, or like in, in certain foods. Um, but uh, maybe we talk about the, the, the dietary uh, intervention on aging as well. So I just leave it for now. Yeah, uh, as we already said earlier, there are some interesting relations uh, between what you can do to prevent aging and what happens in the body during aging. Maybe we can look at it a bit from this perspective of what the protective mechanisms against aging are that are being investigated and triggered by supplements and by 
yeah, by interventions we can do like fasting and and mm -hmm. working out. Sure. Um, so basically, coming from coming from the statement that uh, caloric restriction is the best evolutionary conserved method to prevent uh, age-related diseases, there's also uh, the development uh, from the pharmaceutical side is trying to develop uh, caloric restriction mimetics. So basically, compounds that somehow mimic a caloric restricted state in the body. And uh, probably the most famous example uh, would be metformin. Uh, metformin is typically a, a, uh, the first line treatment of type 2 diabetes um, as it inhibits the gluconeogenesis in the liver and thereby has regulatory effects on your blood glucose level. The good, uh, the, the, the huge advantage of metformin is um, that it has been basically prescribed uh, for a long time to a lot of people. So the safety profile is known. Uh, there's not, uh, there's, yeah, basically there's not so many side effects. You can have some intestinal upset, but uh, which also um, usually goes away after after several days or a week or so. Um, so it has a very good safety profile. And um, one of the effects that metformin does on a cellular level is that it inhibits complex one of the electron transport chain, which I, which I mentioned earlier, which is able to produce ATP. So basically, by inhibiting complex one, it is able to uh, give this short bolus of reactive oxygen species, which I mentioned earlier causes the mitohermetic response. Um, which, used, which is used by the cell to mount on a long term this cytoprotective effect. Um, I mean, uh, metformin has many other effects. Um, there's even a great review um, by the, the main investigator that uh, leads the clinical study, which is called TAME, the target, uh, targeting um, aging with metformin uh, near Basilei. So basically, he wrote a whole review about. Um, the effects of metformin on the individual hallmarks of aging. Um, so, for example, also what we had earlier, uh, metformin increases um, uh, the macro, uh, macro autophagic process, so uh, induces basically the clearance of um, cellular debris in the cell, uh, which can rejuvenate the cell to a certain degree, and um, yeah, thereby basically. Uh, acts as if the cell or as if you are in a caloric restricted state. Maybe backtracking at this point a little bit because it, it seems a bit counterintuitive what we have to do to our body to like reverse aging, to kind of yeah, create this artificial stressful state and to impair our energy metabolism or to, to decrease the function of that. So yeah, maybe we can contextualize that a little bit why this actually works and why we have this inbuilt mechanism that then in turn helps us reverse or like avoid aging too fast. Sure. So um, mechanisms of to, to induce that um, would be, for example, I mean, we had it uh, uh, either strength training, aerobic exercise, or yeah, most directly not eating, obviously. Um, and basically the idea behind it is that the cell can either metabolize nutrients to 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 for growth um, uh, and reproduction, or it can um, put its effort into 
uh, yeah, DNA protection, uh, getting rid of potentially damaged, damaged, damaging protein aggregates or other uh, macromolecules. So basically, if you eat, if you have an ex excess of nutrients, that favors the, the former part, that favors growing, reproducing, which is, uh, on the other hand, obviously uh, um, blocking the, the processes that the cell uses to clear itself and to increase the cytoprotective effects. So um, basically, uh, a well-known um, cellular pathway that uh, senses the energy level um, is AMPK. And AMPK reacts to a low ATP level. And if you have a low ATP level, for example, by not eating, exercising, and so on, it activates AMPK. And AMPK, in turn, has a negative influence on another um, cellular component called mTOR. mTOR is responsible for protein synthesis, um, especially branched-chain amino acids induce uh, proteins translation, whereby muscle mass is being uh, built up. So if you have this system activated, the cell will care for cytoprotective effects and for processes that protect DNA from damages. Um, yeah, I think that is in a nutshell. Uh, I forgot if you had a if you had a second second question. Sorry to follow up. And uh, no, um, I think yeah, th this logic is is what I was getting at. But maybe even also makes sense evolutionary speaking that if you are in a environment where you don't have a lot of nutrients and a lot to eat, your body will kind of focus on maintaining itself until you are in, an, in a richer environment again. And like aging well has not historically been an incentive for, for evolution because we only have to get past the reproductive age. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that was the that was the mechanism I was pinpointing in the very beginning. This idea that processes that are beneficial for you in the very beginning that uh, increase growth that lead you to reproductive age and to pass on your genes are detrimental uh, in the end because they can induce cancer by excessive growth and uh, prevent those those stress response mechanisms that your body needs to maintain its health. Yeah, and the same is true, I guess, for the for the mTOR pathway that that can also lead to increased aging or vice versa. If you inhibit it, it leads to decreased symptoms of aging. Interestingly, you there's a there's a distinction you can make in the mTOR pathway because activation of mTOR um, has been no or is known to induce neurogenesis in the brain. Uh, activated, for example, by classical psychedelics recently they have in the spotlight they increase uh, neurogenesis via mTOR which can have positive effects on uh, obviously diseases that of neurodegeneration so rebuilding neurons by activating mTOR can have beneficial effect in a micro environment but uh, broadly speaking protein trans inhibition of protein translation via inhibition of mTOR via activating AMPK that is induced by a low energy status that means what by a low atp level induced by strength training exercise or uh, eating less that can have then an overall beneficial effect on lifespan and the the extension of or the improved phenotypes of aging so yeah, maybe to to sum this up or bring some structure into it so a lot of the interventions again they bring the body into this kind of stressful state 
it makes sense to sum it up like that or to, to stress your body for a shorter period of time. Yeah, it is for it is for, it is for sure beneficial for your uh, lifespan or for your longevity if you want to do something for healthy aging because this is also a very important thing uh, or aspect to mention that anti-aging regimen are not solely there to increase lifespan but most importantly to extend health span that is the the, the length of time spent in good health because obviously it's very intuitive it doesn't make sense to live longer if um, you spend the the end of your life in a bad health which is nowadays the case with roughly on average 10 percent of your life you'll spend in a bad uh, state of health so the overall goal of anti-aging research is not to increase lifespan but to increase health span so time spending good health and this usually correlates strongly yeah usually it does but there can also be uh, i mean nowadays we have roughly 2000 genes that are known to affect longevity in certain in certain model organisms with roughly thousand compounds that somehow activate or have an impact on on lifespan and obviously there will be genes and there will be compounds that have merely an impact on extending lifespan but not on health span but those two really have to be disentangled what we want to have on a long term in human studies obviously is genetic manipulation or compounds that mostly extend health span do we have a good understanding by now how strongly genetic versus environmental aging factors are i think the the view has changed a bit um we were i think the view has long been that genes played a major role um, to uh, to determine lifespan and health but nowadays we know that your behavior what you eat how you yeah how you behave how much sport you do that is more important to determine your health, uh, your, your 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 lifespan and your health. There are some examples of genes. Uh, one of the most famous examples of genes that have an effect of human lifespan is FOXO transcription factors. This is this has been um, correlated with well, there's a single nucleotide polymorphism, a SNP, that has been associated with human lifespan. Um, but most of the things that uh, that determine lifespan are in your control, which is both uh, both empowering and also kind of uh, challenging because then you have to disentangle for yourself what is best for you, what do you want to do. There's no one-size-fits-all solution, but uh, you have to basically find out uh, what you want to do or if you want to do anything at all there's obviously there's obviously no force or no pressure for you to that you have to improve your health uh, that can also backfire in in getting into a certain obsessive compulsory uh, action mode where you where you get absolutely frightened that you might not do enough to extend your life or to health span but in general you shouldn't very about that too much if you if you are in, if you are in general a healthy person then your body has developed enough protective mechanism but there's also a lot of things that you can do to 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 put to put something on top of that to really make sure that uh, yeah you live uh, uh, a long and healthy life as possible that's a perfect segue into like things we can actually do like the supplement space and interventions i think there's an exploding amount of research and human trials 
beyond the Animan models that try to to look at the effects on aging. Obviously, that's uh, scientifically a tricky study to do because people aging is a slow process and takes decades, and it's mm -hmm. hard to control for all the environmental factors. But yeah, maybe like as a bird's eye view, what what yeah. is happening in that space right now, and then we can maybe look at the more specific interventions and and supplements. Sure. Um, what I what I mentioned earlier with metformin, for example, with the medication that is usually applied to type 2 diabetics, there are people recru being recruited right now in the study called TAME, targeting aging with metformin. The, I think there are 14 centers that participate and they will apply metformin at a dose of 1.5 grams per day, which is quite a big dose, um, to 3,000 people between the age of, I believe, 65 to 80, they will measure biological or markers of aging after, I believe, a five-year trial. And then they will see if metformin um, can or has an impact on biological aging. Interestingly, there has been a study that showed that type 2 diabetic patients who receive metformin live even longer than, than healthy people who don't take metformin. Uh, this is quite interesting. So the the hope of the um, of the people who want to who are proponents of that are obviously very excited because there's already some evidence uh, in humans and there's also preclinical data that is very supportive. So that is very exciting. Another compound that is right now in clinical investigation is a compound called rapamycin. Rapamycin is a compound that uh, ex that exists in a fungus on the easter island rapa nui hence the name and it works by inhibiting mTOR like activated AMPK so it's also kind of a caloric restriction mimetic by inhibiting this protein synthesis activator mTOR and thereby basically lowering down processes that activate growth and activate uh, sorry, did I say inhibit or activate? I want to say uh, inhibit processes uh, that promote growth and activate processes that promote cellular or the, the, the clearance of cellular debris. Apart from those uh, studies in that are in clinical trials, there's also compounds that are in your diet that you can that you can take uh, an an quite famous example is sulforaphane, which uh, is present in, for example, broccoli that activates a transcription factor called NAF2, which is a master regulator of antioxidant processes. So it basically uh, yeah, takes care of producing enzymes that get rid of uh, reactive oxygen species and thereby reintroduces a healthy redox state in your body. There's also other compounds like spermidine which is uh, present in i don't know what the english term is i think oat clay that uh, has been shown to decrease or to increase cognitive function in the elderly population and from the top of my head uh, what what else is there uh, maybe you can maybe you have something <laughs> <laughs> yeah i took some notes um maybe alpha ketoglutarate yeah true yeah, true. That's that's a really interesting one also. So alpha-ketoglutarate has actually been shown in model organisms um, to to reverse uh, epigenetic aging with those uh, 
methylation clocks that I mentioned earlier. Another interesting metabolic intermediate is uh, 3-butoxyglutarate um, that basically is produced when you fast or when you are on a ketogenic diet. So it's a ketone um, that is produced in an autophagic fashion that has also been shown to increase health and lifespan in, in, in model organisms. There's also another hypothesis, I think also put forward by David Sinclair, that basically states that if you eat fruits that have been stressed, so for example, strawberries or berries in general that have a very strong color or uh, that that shows that have been stressed or plants that have that that were grown um, just on a nutrient scarce soil for example that also they will also produce those stress product stress induced products that basically improves their survivability so basically it's good to eat plants that uh, that haven't experienced a lot of pesticides or things that that make it easier for them to grow because that will prevent them from those potential stress factors that increase the the good the good factors i think a term that he called was xeno xenohormesis i think so basically if you if you ingest uh foods uh hence the name xeno uh, and, and the metabolites from them that they increase your your health or potentially potentially increase your health again very interesting that all animals and plants share these similar mechanisms and that what we do to ourselves to to like decrease aging we can also do to to these plants and then in turn profit from the results of that stress reaction within the plant that all of this is so conserved in nature quite fascinating yeah um what I also put down is these NAD precursors that are also used in the supplement space. Yeah, so NAD can be basically supported via their precursors. There are there are various forms out there like uh, nicotinamide riboside, NR or NMN, uh, which are all targeted to increase NAD and thereby increase serotonin activity. So serotonin again being those um, being those energy sensitive epigenetic modulators that increase survivability by by also activating those stress response pathways that increase your health and and uh, cellular well-being there is some debate um, which which precursor has the highest bioavailability i believe i'm not so sure i'm i'm not an expert in that field but there's certainly differences between how much actually NAD is being produced by which by which precursor, but I think either NR or NMN are fairly fairly cheaply available, uh, but uh, I'm I'm not hundred percent sure on that. Okay, so the idea is that you ingest these precursors so that your body has an easier time producing NAD, which in turn helps you. Exactly, but NAD also uh, the same the same as with other other compounds that you could potentially exogenously put in your body they are also produced by those health span promoting behavioral patterns or changes like exercise or or caloric restriction so because uh, nad is a is an energy sensitive uh, compound um, and by obviously by 
by lowering the ATP level in your cells, NAD will be activated, AMPK will be activated. That inhibits mTOR, that again inhibits the, the growth processes in the cell and activates the, the protective mechanisms that will ultimately leave, uh, lead to extension of lifespan and most ideally health span. So again, like most of the interventions and supplements you can take are come back to the same mechanisms within the cells. Yeah, there are fairly, I, th I would say there are, there's a fairly few amount of pathways that, um, that, that regulate aging, which is, which is also interesting, right? That uh, the fact that from the, from the very first deciphering of, of lifespan extending pathways, which has been found uh, amongst others in C. elegans. In C. elegans, it was the discovery that reduction of insulin signaling by knockdown of the insulin receptor in C. elegans is called DAF2. So if you remove DAF2 from the worms, they live roughly twice as long as worms with intact, with the intact genome, with wild-type genome. And since that, uh, it was already, yeah, hypothesized that there, yeah, there, there must be an evolutionary conserved program. But since then, not so many pathways have been added to reduced insulin signaling because also reduced insulin signaling have, has an effect on all those downstream pathways I was already mentioning. So it is interesting. I mean, a lot of, a lot of flesh has been put on the skeleton of pathways, but not so many different pathways, which is, I think, quite quite fascinating and especially with the fact that the the pathway that has been developed or discovered to be one of the first to extend lifespan is most likely also the one that has the biggest effect so reducing insulin signaling which also um, is is induced by uh, reducing in, either increasing your phys physical activity or by reducing the the food intake because insulin is secreted upon carbohydrate intake so reducing that will will reduce those those pathways and again increase those cytoprotective pathways yeah and you mentioned you mentioned the ketogenic diet before but also these fasting regimes is there a consensus by now or what what are the most like proposed like popular protocols to to do intermittent fasting to really like maximize the anti-aging effect and is a ketogenic diet for example also one way of dealing with that or activating them yeah so with intermittent fasting there are i think the most famous strategy is the 168 uh, method which says which states that um not eating for 16 days so fasting for 16 days and having a window where you eat for eight hours has an effect on processes that promote longevity, such as autophagy. But obviously, the longer the fasting period goes, the higher the effect on, for example, autophagy or lifespan extending pathways will be. So there's other, also other pathway, also other regimen, for example, not eating for 24 hours in a week, but then feeding ad libitum, so uh, more or less eating what you like the rest of the week, which can have some beneficial effect on people who tend to lose weight very easily because if you have the um, intermittent fasting regimen can can quickly also lead to 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 weight loss that can be some people 
might want to go for one might aim for that but for some people it might be the wrong strategy so also i think same as for the 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 feeding type for the dietary type there's no one size fits all solution just as well for intermittent fasting also with regards to which diet you should you choose should you go for um like you said for the ketogenic diet diet should you go for vegan should you go for i don't know what what is out there i think um you should go for the one that is that that includes uh, scientifically backed regimen foods that are known to to be beneficial for you but then go for the one that that uh, fits you for example also another hallmark of aging is dysbiosis so the disbalance of your gut microbiome the bacteria that are that colonize your your gut things that or foods that increase or that that have a beneficial effect on on your gut microbiome are so-called pro or prebiotics so probiotics being foods that contain bacteria that are beneficial for you and prebiotics contain compounds that in turn beneficial bacteria feed on a good example would be better glycans that are present in oats they are compounds of fiber that bacteria feed on that are good for you and in turn foods for example kimchi or kombucha they have a quite strong taste because it's fermented foods so where bacteria use the sugar to 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 yeah to ferment the sugar uh, they they have a quite strong taste so it might not be not 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 all people might like it even though it has a good effect um, on your on your gut microbiome and anyway as we had it before with um, mental disorders or mental health it's also quite fascinating that recently more and more research has so shown that also your gut microbiome has a quite striking effect on your on your mental health uh, status so also transplants uh, microbiome transplants from healthy to for example depressed patients has has shown some some good results on on the on the disease phenotype in preclinical models so yeah i i anyway i don't i, I don't want to i don't want to rec recommend anything but if people are interested i think there's a lot of things scientifically proven compounds and foods that you should take in that are known to be to yeah to 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 increase or to promote those longevity pathways but I think it's also it can be it can be a fun ride to experiment with those right and then to eventually eventually um come or to 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 arrive at at both a behavioral or a, let's say a sport pattern or behavioral pa at a, a dietary regimen that that fits you really well and i guess the experimenting part is really crucial because every human being has such a strong diversity like even talking about the gut microbiome this is really kind of comes together randomly by exposure in your mother's womb and during yeah, the birth yeah. and all these kind of factors so it's really hard to find size fits all solutions in biology but it's also cool that you can experiment with these behavioral interventions like intermittent fasting and find a good protocol that works for you yeah, yeah. i mean also if you if you if you I think I think the future anyway holds holds great promise because anti-aging research has exploded over the last the last year the, the last years. So 
they are very promising also also by now um kind of out there ideas i think so for example i had it earlier with the that uh, in my master thesis that i used the induced pluripotent stem cells so generating stem cells from already differentiated cells there is now studies also by david sinclair amongst others who showed that using those yamanaka transcription factors who that that induce pluripotency from cells they can be used to rejuvenate cells and to also restore vision in in mice where where the optic nerve has been damaged of course you have to be very very careful because those yamanaka transcription factors are basically inducing also are cancerogenic so there's one transcription factor is cmic which is basically a transcription factor that is overexpressed in i can't yeah i don't know the exact number but by in a large percentage of cancers so the development goes towards to yeah temporary or or short term cycling of of overexpressing of those transcription transcription factors to rejuvenate certain aspects of aging or to rejuvenate certain organs this is still in its infancy but i think it's it's quite promising um for for future research yeah i think you were referring to that uh yeah paper that came out a couple of months ago yeah yeah exactly and i, re I read that Yeah, one of the interesting things is that they also induce the aging process themselves by inducing these double strand breaks. Yeah, exactly. So that's that was another factor. I mean, that's this all goes back to 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 the theories of aging we had in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. So um, damage repair or information theory. But since since we're still lacking a really yeah w absolutely well defined and and. Uh, for sure definition of aging i think this is still kind of a play around with the working hypothesis we have but i believe that the working hypothesis is already quite well in predicting or in in researching um what we eventually want to achieve and it made for some cool pictures which are also always useful for the popular science community because you had these mice next to each other <laughs> sure. and they are all the same age <laughs> and then some of them have gray hair actually look like old people exactly yeah <laughs> so yeah yeah definitely brings the message across um, yeah we we talked again about uh, yeah therapies and, and a lot of relating factors and know you're also really interested in psychedelics and psychedelic research so you, you mentioned one of the factors already why that could be related to aging but also to, to finding interesting the therapeutic approaches i know if you still want to say something about that i have something to add what we already discussed yeah with With regards to psychedelics, I think it's a, this is a general very interesting topic with regards to treating mental health disorders, which has also been uh, quite active in the last in the last years. But also to 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 yeah to to make the connection to anti-aging research, it is quite fascinating to see that well, for once, it has been shown that psychedelic assisted psychotherapy can have beneficial effects on certain certain types of addiction so on has a positive effect on on smoking on alcohol addiction so that per se because everyone knows that smoking cigarettes and drinking too much alcohol is bad for you and bad for your health so already this indirect effect of psychedelics can promote health but obviously 
you need uh, a therapeutic assistance for that. It's obviously of no use to take psychedelics and hope for the best and hope that you drink and smoke less. That needs uh, therapeutic um, channeling. Uh, but on the other hand, it's also interesting that they that there's a, also a more direct evidence that psychedelics can have a beneficial effect on certain aging phenotypes. So, for example, a, paper, a recent paper has found that LSD in mice in, improves, um, I think, visual memory tasks, or was it? Uh, it was no, um, novel object recognition. So basically, shows uh, um, it, the, the the recognition, the memory uh, improvement was actually found in, in humans. So that basically, um, yeah, hint hints towards the idea that psychedelics and in this case LSD might be used or might be beneficial as nootropics, so to increase cognitive performance and thereby potentially also help in the in the prevention of neurodegeneration, where cognitive impairment is one of the one of the core marks. Um, also a paper I think from 2020 investigated that psychedelic ingestion correlates or in, might induce a more health-focused behavior pattern. So, yeah, to take care about your health more because, well, the reason is not really known, but uh, what is reported that psychedelics induce these, yeah, very, well, on the one hand, mystical type experience, but also this very intimate experience where you can uh, analyze maybe your your behavioral patterns and to to conclude that maybe you want to want to improve in certain aspects of your life. Yeah, and one of the interesting factors that relates to what you just said is to that we can understand with psychedelics what effect the kind of psychological mystical experience, the introspection has for the beneficial health outcome, but also like what the effect on the body directly is, so which pathways it activates is actually healthy in different ways and how much of the mystical experience is necessary to achieve a positive therapy effect i think that is that is a, a um a question of ongoing debate right if the if the mystical type effect is actually part i mean i i do believe so but i mean there's there's also development co towards uh, psychoplastogens i believe they are they are called fa uh, famously put forward by by david olson and his team who they create yeah non non psychedelic psychedelics so serotonin 5 uh, h or 5 hd2a receptor agonists that supposedly don't induce psychedelic experiences which of course can be in preclinical models only approximated which you do which you do by a so-called head twitch response in rodents so it's it's an ongoing debate whether or not those those, those introspective um, experiences are are necessary for for the therapeutic outcome in psychiatry i believe so and with with also with with the effect on 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 well behavioral change i think it is quite intuitive. Of course, we don't know yet, so I can only say that uh, what I believe from from the data. But I think it is quite intuitive to to believe or to to have the stance that introspection is necessary for a behavioral change. Because as we all know, it's it's not easy to to overcome uh, hardwired behavioral patterns that you want to get rid of. 
So it is also needed or necessary for a really uh, deep digging experience to overcome this this big hurdle. Yeah, at the same time, it's it's quite puzzling and I think surprising also for the people that are enthusiastic about psychedelics, what level of success you can achieve even in treatment resistant depression, for example, because there's also like from a like more biophysiological side, there's this idea that there are some like factors that are not only psychological that are underlying depression, some kind of dysfunction metabolically. And then to, to have this intervention, mm -hmm. which is mostly psychological and is experience-based and then still achieve very high success rates with treating resistant, like treatment-resistant depression for people that have been depressed for 10 years without end, for example, that is very surprising. So there seems to, at least seems to be that there's some also, yeah, bigger physical effect that comes in hand with this um, mental effect. I mean, we ha we had this before with the with the problem of what what comes first, right? The 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 biological effect or the or the mental effect. And uh, I'm I, I'm I'm careful now to really to really say something specific because I don't have the data in my mind. But there's also been research that uh, psychedelics and also ketamine uh, have a beneficial effect on inflammatory markers and ketamine as well is very famous for uh, well, for being marketed uh, as Bravato, as a nasal spray, and possibly also reducing depressive symptoms by reducing inflammation. So we have this effect, again, uh, yeah, psychedelics, or, well, ketamine is not a psychedelic, but those compounds have an effect on the psyche, but they also have an effect on the biology, which, as in the case with, with inflammation, um, might have an effect on on the depression phenotype. So, I think we'll we'll have to wait and and see for the for the maybe near future to have yeah, to yeah, shed more sure. light on that. I mean, what you also mentioned this idea of trauma being embodied and you know this even this in PTSD or this state of of self aggression, or that that your body is basically yeah keeping this constant state of of stress. That if you treat that mentally and mm -hmm. you get to that yeah working with that trauma. Also on a physical level, I think that's one of the reasons why like MDMA-assisted trauma therapy works so well, because you get into that optimal state of excitation. You can actually work with the trauma and you get to these deeper layers of the psyche. And then you yeah. work with the physicality yeah. automatically. And then that state of yeah, constant yeah, fear and this like, hyperactivity and in certain brain areas that are responsible, for example, for the adrenaline pathways or like epinephrine in the brain that yeah you get rid of that and then like the mental relief automatically leads to like downstream effects on the body and then you work with everything simultaneously yeah i think yeah there's there's nothing more to say i think the the the, the yeah the, the big advantage of mdma assisted psychotherapy against ptsd is that you have that you can have yeah access towards your 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 traumatizing memories without having the the immediate physical reaction so you can actually work on them and and loosen loosen this this knot that causes that causes the issues so now that we talked about science and the science directly a lot i also wanted to take a step back and maybe talk a bit about the scientific process in general and what what insights you have gained during your phd yeah and i think also talking to my colleagues and and talking yeah the the, the yeah talking to 
to the peers during the process. I think what I personally definitely underestimated is the amount of <laughs> frustration tolerance you have to to have in order to pursue a PhD. This, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't um, believe that in my master thesis because as a master student, usually you work on a project that has that is already kind of ongoing and established, where you take a small part maybe of a PhD student or just a, a, a small bit of a greater picture. Com that comparing to a PhD thesis where you basically normally work on a, yeah, a question that pushes the scientific boundary forward, right? You're working really on the frontier of knowledge to get a tiny bit of new knowledge that can be used by the scientific community to again push forward the, the boundary of knowledge. And I think it lies in the nature of the things that most things that you try out to push this boundary of knowledge will turn out to be not true. So you have to work with the data you have, with the hypothesis you've established, and, well, work a lot and, and hope or, or believe believe in your ideas, believe in your hypothesis and believe in your data that um, at some point and most likely you will you will uh, actually achieve that goal of, of pushing the, the boundary of knowledge and you will achieve getting into getting into new insights. But but that step is takes a long time, takes takes patience. But once you've reached it, I think it can be also very gratifying because, well, then you know how much it actually takes to, to partake in the scientific process, in the discovery of new things. That can be, or that is for sure very gratifying and can also erase all the frustration that has preceded this, this then discovery. Yeah, it seems to me, especially in the like biology, chemistry, in these sciences that deal with living systems you have so many complications by necessity that it's an extremely yeah, tedious process and, and very hard to control for everything yeah i also feel like that people from different fields of study always think that other areas have it so much easier so uh, when i talk to uh, a friend who's doing a phd in in uh, in programming or in, in it related uh, topics he says he, he thinks basically that i go to the lab i i pipe it some liquids in in eppendorf tubes or wherever um, throw throw the solution in a in a machine get a perfect result go home and after four years i have my phd in my pocket automatically um and also when i think or yeah when when i i also me in my naive thoughts i think what can be the problem of writing some some code in a computer and press enter? Like, what's the big deal? But obviously, I mean, I have no idea about it. So, um, just in my naive thinking, it's like that. Obviously, if you if you have to deal with that really in detail, and that you will definitely do. So you will you will become an expert in in your field of expertise. And uh, the the good thing is also, from my experience, if you if you face a problem that you can't solve and you 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 take time to take a step back and really think about what's yeah what is the underlying problem you will also learn way way more than than if you yeah just just walk through a project uh, without any issue so the frustration on the one part will most usually from my experience uh, be be outweighed by the by the yeah by the 
by the problem solving skills that you gain uh, as a return. Yeah, I listened to a podcast with a theoretical physicist recently and he mentioned that with every paper he writes, he always feels like an idiot when he looks at the finished paper because he thinks like, what the hell did we do the last year? Well, it, it, it seems so obvious <laughs> in retrospect. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is, that is, yeah, I can very well, um, yeah, I definitely empathize with that. <laughs> also, when I, when I look back now on my, on my written PhD thesis, I also think that's, that's it, that, that's really it. Uh, I have spent four and a half years on that, but of course, uh, also when I look actually at, at the data that I've not used, so all the experiments I've did that didn't make it to the actual thesis, this yeah, this heavily outweighs the data that actually made it to the thesis. So, um, yeah, but it takes time, it takes patience, but in the end, it can be very, very gratifying. Yeah, that's one of the tricky parts of yeah, reminding yourself what didn't work. Because yeah, think, yeah, yeah, the publishing system obviously skews our perception because everything always works when yeah. you look at papers. Yeah, sure. That's sometimes a simple idea. A question I also like to ask at the end is if you have any favorite books from the scientific realm, but also like more generally that that shaped your thinking and the way you approach life or the sciences. Um, so right now I'm actually reading books about epistemology. So about the philosophical question, what can be known, how to get to factual knowledge and how we can be sure that we actually know something true about the world. That comes partly from my background in neuroscience because neuroscience um, has a very bloated ego when it comes to the interpretation of formerly philosophical realms. So especially I, th I, would, I, would, I would think, well, now it gets a bit better, I would say, but especially, let's say, 10, 15 years ago, uh, when there was a really big surge in neuroscience, and um, there was a there was experiments about the brain controlling basically free will that humans don't have free will that the brain uh, basically predicts everything sometime a short time before we actually do the voluntary movement, the libid experiments, and also other experiments that basically took over the the interpretation of, for example, yeah, what is reality? What do we see? Uh, yeah, what is the environment? Is it is it uh, is it just a construction, or do we see it as it is? And especially because of that, because of this pushback of neuroscience or philosophy, where they said, "Well, we don't need you anymore. We have all the answers." But the, the, the important turning point came actually when they when they saw that well, the brain only interprets signals from the outside. So you can say that the color brown is only a certain frequency of electromagnetic wavelength that is interpreted by the brain to perceive the color brown. So then neuroscience asked themselves, well, if, if it's only interpretation, what do we actually see? And then they had to come back to the, to the, to the, to the, let's say to the old school philosophers, what is reality? What can we know? So right now I'm reading a book from uh, the German philosopher, Markus Gabriel. It's called, um, warum es die Welt nicht gibt, why the world doesn't exist. And he basically questions um, this view about constructivism, that uh, the world is only constructed and that we can never know what lies behind uh, uh, yeah, our perception, the, the, famous, the famous Kantian thing in itself. Yeah. And he basically says uh, that it doesn't matter we like, what we perceive as humans is already 
yeah the the ultimate reality so he also founded uh, the 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 stream of new realism so that i'm really interested about right now because i think um yeah science kind of lacks a lot uh, these these uh, reflections so we are very quick or we we are we, we we get the data and we are very quick to interpret them and draw conclusions from them without really um yeah i think without paying too much attention with with regards to what we can actually extrapolate with regards to yeah it's it's feasibility of of extrapolation so that's what i'm really interested in really right right now at least to 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 the question yeah what what is reality uh, what is uh, what does it mean to know something and can we really be sure that we can say something about the world yeah these are great points and and a very relevant topic i think yeah scientists especially in the hard sciences are removed from or there's a certain arrogance about how much time do we need to spend with philosophy i came from particle physics i think in physics it's especially bad no one talks about philosophy there's no yeah. philosophy lesson in the entire like bachelor master program that you actually have to take or are encouraged to take and in your sense it's also true but i think we underestimate how strong our philosophical assumptions these kind of epistemic this epistemological underlying assumptions uh, shape our theories and our experiments uh, Yuri Busaki, who was also on this podcast, he, he wrote a very interesting book about the brain from inside out. And he's criticizing that most of neuroscience like, starts from the assumption of this outside-in approach that we look at the brain in a, as a like information processing device that takes in information from the outside, you know, from this empiricist paradigm from the 18th century, then processes it. And every neuroscience experiment is set up that way. You look like a monkey looks at signal on a screen that are moving around. And then we record the activity of the brain, and then we say this activity processes the signal. And so, yeah, I found that claim also very interesting that really what people wrote in the 18th century and what has become kind of the standard way of doing science and looking at the world shapes the way we interpret the, the brain without even knowing our results. So, yeah, it's, I guess it's very important to take that step back and realize that there's still that we are maybe too too eager or too fast to yep, yeah yeah draw conclusions maybe yeah maybe let's let's see let's see also what the future brings there i guess yeah. <laughs> if 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 we get humble enough to to listen to the philosophers yeah <laughs> or we will listen to the ai in the long run <laughs> yeah so thanks a lot this was a very cool interesting conversation i don't know if you had any points you wanted to cover that we didn't touch upon um no, I think that uh, that gave a very very broad overview and also with some with some insights into certain aspects. I'm very satisfied and yeah, thanks to you, it was a really interesting talk. Wonderful.